This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. Welcome to another roundup of Level Rides and Boundaries coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawks Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton. And I'm Neville Wallace broadcasting from Hara. And Christmas is nearly here. Today I have only two guests and they are Professor Jacqueline Rath and Philip Duncan. First up is Professor Rath and Jacqueline and I are discussing aspects surrounding Hiwaka Ekanawa. With us today is Professor Jacqueline Rath, who will give us some clarification of what's happening in the rural community regarding emissions control. Good morning, Jacqueline. Good morning, Neville. Lovely to be talking with you. It sure is. Jacqueline, there's been a lot in the media recently about greenhouse gas and agriculture being brought into an emissions levy. Farmers are upset, figures are flying around, like 20% of sheep farms are going into forestry. Can you give us a bit of a background here? Well, Neville, you can understand that lots of people would be upset about 20% of sheep farms going into forestry. It seems like a travesty given our beautiful country. But yes, this has been going on for quite a while. And when we think about agriculture, the emissions levy, the emissions trading scheme, the ETS, that we're all, including farmers, paying through, well, when we buy fuel at the pump, for instance, we have been looking at taxation for greenhouse gases in New Zealand for a long time. And think back to Shane Arden and driving his tractor up Parliament steps in 2008, That was the second time that the government had tried to bring agriculture into the emissions trading scheme. And at that stage, people were saying agriculture shouldn't be brought into a fart tax. Well, (laughs) we know actually that it isn't that end of the animal that's the problem. It's the belching, the rumen and the natural digestion of grass and creation of methane. So there he was on the tractor on the beehive steps. And in 2018, that was a decade later, it all started again. Should agriculture be brought into the emissions trading scheme, the ETS? And there was a great consultation about it. And in 2019, the public consultation involved quite a lot of the public saying, yes, agriculture should be taxed. But what the government listened to was the fact that actually New Zealand farmers are pretty good and they agreed with the industry leaders, Beef and Lamb, Dairy NZ, Federated Farmers, Deer Industry in New Zealand, Apiculture, the bees were in there, Foundation for Arable Research, Horticulture was in there, the Meat Industry Association, the, the Dairy Companies Alliance, all of those groups together saying we can do better than the emissions trading scheme, which would link agricultural greenhouse gases to the carbon um, number, which at that stage was about $25 a tonne, but is now around about 80 mm. So they were given a couple of years to sort out a better framework, and Hewaka Ete Noa, we're all in this together, was established. And they put forward recommendations in May 
this year, May the 31st, 2022. And then on the 11th of October, the government came back with its response. And the response had this 20% of sheep farms going into forestry. And so there was a lot of concern, and you can imagine. But actually, the modelling that MPI and MFE, the Ministry for the Environment and Ministry for Primary Industries, did was based on current trajectories. And New Zealand farmers have always been really innovative about the way they use their land, evaluating markets, evaluating costs and potential selling prices. And the sector, it was the sector that was modelled to change to forestry, 20% of it, not individual farms losing 20% of their income. And that was a big confusion because, as we know, um, New Zealand farms are pretty good. Now, I would have thought that New Zealand meat and milk were the largest emissions in the world. But before I finish that one, Jacqueline, you mentioned yep. methane before. And yep. when I talk to Philip Duncan, there's uh, quite a lot of lightning around there. That's a flammable gas, isn't it? Wouldn't it go up when there's a bit of lightning? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, yeah, it doesn't sort of do that. We're talking up in the you know, up higher stratosphere and all of those sorts of things. So the biggest methane emitters in the world are the um, fuel pipes, gas in particular, and fracking and leakage of methane from oil exploration is about the same as ruminant methane around the world. So that's another reason why farmers are a bit upset about it. There's a whole lot of natural stuff that's not being penalised. It's just called fugitive methane. But uh, New Zealand farmers are being eyed because of the methane that they produce. And, of course, methane is quite a short-lived gas. Its half-life is seven to eight years. And there's been quite a lot of research around that to say, should we be regarding biological methane differently from fossil fuel methane? And the government accepted that argument and gave us what is termed the split gas approach, so that nitrous oxides are very long-lived gas, carbon dioxide, they are regarded differently from methane. And the Hewaka Ethanoa um, was allowed to just consider the weight of methane that the animals are producing in the knowledge that it disappears over a few decades, uh, whereas the long-lived gases are treated with their, the effect they have on their atmosphere. Yeah. So it's all, um, all quite complicated, but when the government's response came back, they kept the split gas approach, and that was a big relief. Ah, yeah. Now, what about the Paris Agreement of 2015? Didn't it say, do everything you can to reduce greenhouse gas emissions without reducing food production? Yes, it did. And farmers hold that dearly because New Zealand meat and milk, and there has just been latest research just last week proving it, that we have the lowest emissions in the world connected with our kilos of product. But other countries are catching up. And there are global carbon agreements, Kyoto, the Paris Accord, uh, Paris Agreement, just as you've mentioned. And so... We look at, we need to be doing something because of the global trade agreements, and some of your listeners might have seen in Farmers Weekly recently that New Zealand products are not being taxed at the EU border yet. Um. But part, so part of our agreement, can we do anything more? And it doesn't let us off the hook that we're the best in the world. 
Now, there is a bit of a concern that um, our government is regarding this without reducing food production as something to do with domestic food security, whereas William Ralston, who was Federated Farmers President at the time, is adamant that actually the focus was on the global food supply. And if the food that we're not producing anymore happened to be produced by a country that wasn't as efficient, then that's what you've heard about emissions leakage. That is, an efficient country replaced by a less efficient country means more greenhouse gas circulating in total, and that's not what we want. Now, is it only our export products that will be affected, meat and milk being the main ones? Well, no, because levies are being proposed for horticulture too. And it's through a levy on the nitrogen inputs, the fertiliser, and maybe even the organic nitrogen that they might use from um, pigs or poultry, the uh, bedding there. So if the cost is passed on, we would see an even greater increase in the price of fruit and vegetables. And, you know, last month we saw 16%, and the figure just this week has gone up even higher. And a lot of that is to do with the price of agrochemicals. A lot of it's to do with the price of fertilizer. Do we really want to be hiking that even more than it already is? And so that's why we would say go back to the Hewaka Ekanoa proposal that was put forward in, on the 31st of May. And we need to look at that to see actually if that is better for the New Zealand um, consumers of food as well knowing that everything we do on farm and in horticultural enterprises is keeping us ahead of our competitors overseas because we are extremely efficient producers. And so we need to be satisfying our domestic consumers as well as our overseas um, buyers. The, the, the people, who, people like Danone, Unilever, Mars, Nestle, McDonald's, all of them have goals of their own to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and they want us to be part of their journey. Yeah, I look up a certain gully from where we live here, Jacqueline, I'm looking towards town, and believe it or not, I can see gorse growing there with its bright yellow flowers, and that's a uh, nitrogen-producing weed, isn't it? Yep, and broom. And some of our native plants, Kofi, for instance, right, yeah. um, they, they produce nitrogen. Nitrogen, um, in terms of this, we're talking about uh, nitrogen leaching losses there. It's not, they don't produce greenhouse gases per se. Ah, oh, no, right. So they're not going to be part of the emissions trading scheme, but we want to get rid of them because they, they're contributing to, to nitrogen in the soil, and sometimes that can get away to waterways. Right, will regenerative agriculture help yeah. achieve even lower um, carbon footprint, Jacqueline? No, it won't. It won't because these hyper-diverse pastures, the longer than recommended for New Zealand conditions, actually means poorer quality pasture. And if you've got poorer quality pasture, animals tend not to produce as much per kilo of body weight, so milk, for instance, and they also um, might, if they're a meat animal, they take longer to get to weight and for being sent away to the works. And the whole, a lot of what we've achieved in New Zealand with this very low methane greenhouse gases per kilo of product has been because we 
feed our animals well, we look after their welfare extremely well, and we have very productive animals. Now, do you know, over in the USA, they would expect to have a dairy cow milking in the herd for two years. Their lactations will be longer than that in New Zealand, but two years? So they take two years to get to the herd, and then they're in the herd for two years, and then they're gone. Whereas New Zealand is usually five and a half years in the herd. So their two years to get into the herd are spread along that um, productive time. The other thing New Zealand does is um, some of the, the calves from the dairy herd are put, well, they have a sire that's a beef animal. So dairy beef is actually our least impact greenhouse gas meat. So we work together really closely. And that was part of the fuss about what the um, government came back with to Heiwaka Ekanoa. The government hadn't realised how very interconnected the, all the sectors are in New Zealand, uh-huh. that farmers work together with their different enterprises to gain the best outcome for New Zealand. Right. So what can be done there, Jacqueline? Well, I think it's becoming pretty apparent, and part of that is because um, our minister, Damien O'Connor, actually did say this, that when the government came out with its recommendations on the 11th of October, they were just suggestions, and that if we feel strongly, and I think we, we pretty much do, that Hewaka Ekanoa actually had better recommendations that we could manage, and keep New Zealand productive, remembering remembering that the primary sector overall is 81.8% of the export economy. It's the only new money coming into the country, and that's what supports the infrastructure, housing, education, welfare, and think about the hospitals as well. They need that money. And if the new proposals from the government are actually significant in terms of the impact, then we should be going back to look at what Heiwaka Ekanoa recommended. And there are options within some of the sectors that will be viable, and we've been working on them and getting them in place, and certainly pasture management is one of them, so that we can continue to contribute to New Zealand's economy, can do ever better, always better, about their greenhouse gases, and provide a levy that will allow um, the more research and development that will allow us to do even better in the future. And the levy will show our trading partners that we are doing everything we can and are on the right pathway. And our pathway, the current trajectory, is that we will have reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 10% by 2030, which was what the government wanted. It, It could be regarded as a success story, and I think it should be. Right, Jacqueline, I heard you say that New Zealand farmers are the most resourceful and resilient and productive in the world. Well, how will they get through this next stage? Well, using everything that they've learnt in the past. (laughs) And it was, you know, I'm thinking, our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has used the term just transition. She used it in Taranaki when the energy, uh, you know, the energy industry was given some different imperatives. She's used it with this agricultural suggestion about the Heiwaka Ekanoa, and it's very different from in the 80s when the subsidies were removed virtually overnight. They just went. At that stage, history says 40% of, on average, of income for a sheep and beef station 
was actually to do with subsidies, and they went overnight. And that was a terrible time of adjustment. One percent of farmers, history says, actually exited the industry. But what was left was the most resilient, innovative, resourceful and productive section in the world. As you said, productive, we've got the productivity gains. And even since the global financial crisis, New Zealand's agricultural productivity gains been 2.2%, whereas in the OECD it's been 1%, and in UK, my home country, it's been zero. We are fantastic. There is weeping wailing. There's farmers wondering how they're going to survive, and the levy bodies and all the industry partners are working very hard to make sure that people understand the difference between sector change, which is what the government has modelled, that's very different from farmer change. And my money is on the New Zealand farmer and the primary sector who emerged from this even better than it went in. Well, thank you for your time today, Professor Roth, and no doubt we'll catch up for our Christmas end of year show shortly. I'm looking forward to it, Neville. Thank you. As this is the penultimate show for the year, as is also the final show for Philip Duncan from Weatherwatch, Philip and I discuss what kind of weather we'd like to be receiving over the holiday break, plus a few tips on handling our high New Zealand UV sunlight levels. Well, let's go to Auckland for the final weather outlook for 2022. Good morning, Philip Duncan. Good morning, Neville. How are you doing? Well, we're doing fine. Just looking out the window at the rain and uh, thinking that'll make the grass grow, but we've got to have warmth, so... Uh, What is the outlook, uh, Philip? Well, we've actually just issued our Climate Watch update for the month of December and the season of summer. And uh, I do expect a few complaints from some people, especially people that are going away on the holiday, want to put up a tent and an awning and have their sun umbrella and gazebos up. I think I'll get more complaints from them than I will from the average farmer because the weather pattern coming up is a very messy one. Um, There are signs of low-pressure zones coming out of the tropics. There are signs of low-pressure zones coming out of the Southern Ocean and high-pressure areas out around Australia. Now, that setup encourages windy weather across New Zealand and probably more west-to-southwest winds than a lot of people might expect. So a bit of a changeable weather forecast coming through, but still getting high pressure, still getting dry days and not necessarily raining um, heavily everywhere. And the other part of it all is it'll be a bit warmer than average. That doesn't mean, though, that the days are going to be stinkingly hot. It just means when you add up all the temperatures at the end of the month, it's probably a little bit warmer than usual. So that means I expect the nights to be a little bit milder, perhaps. But the days, they may not be anything famous just yet. Maybe we have to wait a little bit longer for the truly hot weather to come in. And that is usually mid to late January and, and the first half of February, at least. So I just heard somebody talking this morning about some, I think they might have said uh, Niwa. They are able to forecast a drought coming a month ahead, but I don't think that. Well, let me put it this way. You know, if, if people think that Niwa is really nailing, and their climate forecasts, I mean, they're, they are better focused on long range than they are on short range. But my feeling is if you can't get it right in the next couple of days, how can you trust them to get it right for the next couple yeah. of months? 
I'm not a huge fan of long-range weather. I often say in my climate watch videos, don't take this too seriously. This is really what the best computers in the world, the best science in the world is saying. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best science in the world And as far as accuracy is concerned. There's still a lot to learn, especially in a country like New Zealand, absolutely surrounded by the ocean. Now, if NIWA and NPI are getting another giant handout from the government to do something, if it... If it works and if publicly we can all use it and share it, then it's great. But if it turns out to be yet another commercial thing that they're selling to big business, I just don't care about it. I don't get why this government agency, NIWA, gets so much media attention when they get government handouts to go and make products they sell only to the richest corporates. So we'll see. Um, I'm open-minded, but their past behavior has been very disappointing in the fact that they – they believe that it's all of their property, even though the government funds a lot of it. They they don't like sharing their information, so we tend to use the Bureau of Meteorology out of Australia, who are very accurate and have guided us very well. But if NIWA cannot make this all open, I will be the first to be championing it, because we need to be, um, as New Zealanders, sharing the information and the wealth that we're all um, generating together. Now, I've noticed, Philip, you're covering much more of Australia nowadays, and I think when I watched it last night, that was quite a long uh, forecast you gave for the simple reason you said it was going to be the last one. But it seems to me as though there'll be some warm weather coming from Australia. Am I correct there? Yeah, I mean, they've got um, La Nina is fading out, and it's in the Coral Sea. But at the same time that it's fading out, we're going into summer. So you might not really notice it because the sea temperatures are just going to keep going up, but they may just not be that much warmer than usual as opposed to where they've been the last few weeks. So you can be warmer than usual, but, but um, yeah, the temperature's not that high. At the moment, the sea temperatures up there are getting higher and higher, around the, the low 30-degree mark now if you jump in the sea, which is very, very warm. Um, and that's perfect for creating storms. But at the moment, the high-pressure zones down around southern Australia and out around New Zealand are stopping the tropics from coming down our way. That means that we can be protected for a while but it also can mean that the tropics can build up energy and at some point that must be released. So if we don't get any storms developing and leaving the tropics in the next month, then that possibly uh, increases the risk of storms later on in summer up that way and drifting down into parts of Australia. So uh, you're right, and I do talk about Australia in my videos more, mostly because I just take a look at the screenshot which covers Australia and New Zealand and the South Pacific and I talk about wherever the weather is. I mean, who wants to watch a 10-minute video about New Zealand if all I'm saying is partly cloudy every single day of the week? So I like to talk a bit, bit bigger picture on these things and, and give people an understanding of what's really going on around us that could end up influencing our weather in two weeks from now or three weeks from now. And if NEWA has their drought uh, index going up and running for three months out, then that's just another piece of the puzzle we can put in there as well. Um, but it depends on how accurate it is and, and how, good, uh, how, how open they are at sharing it. Now, last night I noticed that you mentioned the warm water and you said you know, people that are bathing and swimming better beware of sharks this year. Is, yeah. Do those sharks like the warmer water, Philip? Some do, some do. You know, not all. I think great white sharks prefer it colder, um, but I think there are many other sharks that like it warm. And so uh, New Zealand has had a little bit of a uptick in shark sightings and, and shark attacks, I would say, in the last 10 years. Um, and so... I just think it's another thing to be aware of. I'm, I'm, I grew up swimming in the sea. Um, I wasn't too scared of sharks. 
I have swum in the sea when a shark swam right past me. Um, it came up in the crest of the wave <laughs> and was a little terrifying, but it was a sand shark. It would never have probably done anything to me. But it was, it, it's just a reminder that my advice to people is just don't, don't have your back to the water for too long. You know, that's, that's, that's my advice. I, I just believe that when you're in the water, you should always be looking around you for anything, whether it's, uh, sin, <laughs> which is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, or a jellyfish, or just simply even a wave that's coming out of nowhere. And it was my dad that really taught me, because he was a primary school principal, never put your back to the sea. So I always have that advice to people, not just for a wave, but you just never know what's floating around the water. And if you're vigilant, you'll probably be absolutely fine. Yeah, well, in other words, keep your eyes open, son. Yeah. yeah just to finish or with... Or at least one eye. One eye on <laughs> Now, just to finish with, Philip, that one that people don't see... But they know at the end of the day they've got it when they, oh, crazy, I've got all that sunburn. Tell them about that UV level and why they should be aware, Philip. I think they need reminding, please. Yeah, well, we're certainly in that time of year now when the UV index is, is extreme when the sun is out. And if it's windy and cold, that makes no difference to the UV rays coming through. So you can be freezing cold and get one of the worst sunburns of your life. So be aware that the UV rays now and for the next three months ahead are in that extreme level. And not so bad on a thick, cloudy day, but on a, on a lightly cloudy day, um, even if you don't feel overly warm, the UV rays can still be burning through your skin, especially in the middle of the day. So it's just a bit of common sense. And if you do need to figure out what the UV rays or what the, what the um, numbers are, whether it's extreme or moderate, whatever, uh, you can go to the Rural Weather website. And halfway down the page, there's detailed data or daily data. You can find it in there for your local area. So it's, it's helpful. We're going to do more with that in 2023 to make it come to life a little bit more so people are aware that today's a day that's extreme and maybe on the days where it's lower, we don't, we don't mention it. But it's uh, good to start telling people that, you know, you need to be covering up. And it's all year round in this country, you know, even in the middle of winter, yeah. we have moderate to high UV rays. So we have a high level of skin cancer in this country. So I think it is well worth constantly reminding people, slip, slop, slap and wrap, stay in the shade. Yeah, and keep that skin covered. And what's the old saying? Mad dogs and Englishmen run out in the midday sun or work in the midday sun. That's the one, so. yeah. So and also I would say to people, leave as an excuse to have an afternoon siesta. You know, the sun's at its highest, hottest point. Yeah. Now's your time to, to sit down or watch the cricket. If someone tells you off for doing that, you can just say, I'm protecting my skin. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, good one. And thank you for all the weather forecasts for 2022 and look forward to doing it again in 2023. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Neville. Thanks for all your support this year, too. Thank you, Shona, for the very lovely Christmas cake. And um, have yourselves a very, very wonderful Christmas and summer as well. And a Merry Christmas to you, Philip, and your mum and dad as well. And I think you've got a couple of brothers. Good man. Thank, Thank you. you know yes, that's right. And same to all of your family as well. I hope you have a really good one this year. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Next week, Jacqueline Rath and I are swapping roles, as she will be asking questions for my view of the year that was. So keep listening, as I have some very interesting speakers lined up for over the holiday break. So see you next week. Kiki and more. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand on air. 
To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.